And I invite you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26, where we'll continue. In that chapter we were on two weeks ago, Leviticus chapter 26. It's a lengthy passage, so what we're going to do is um, read from verse 8 to verse 21, and if need be, we will pick up from there and comment as we go along. Leviticus chapter 26, beginning at verse 8. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and make you erect. But if you will not listen to me, and I will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me, and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Last time we were in this chapter, we saw the Lord setting before Israel two contrasting paths and their consequences, the first of which was the path of blessing and obedience. And as we saw, such walk entailed, first of all, abstention from idolatry. Verse 2, and that is verse 1, verse 2, it involved attention to divine ordinances. Verse 3, it involved abiding in his word. The Lord promised Israel in verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will do this, that, and the other. His promised blessings, among the blessings that God promised, number one, was economic prosperity, verses 4 and 5. Secondly, national prosperity, at the end of verse 5 on to verse 6. God was saying to Israel that if they remain faithful to him, if as a nation they remain faithful to him, 
he would see to it that they live in peace. The word peace, of course, is the Hebrew word shalom, and the term connotes the idea of harmony, prosperity, health, and contentment. Now, bear in mind, as we said last time, whenever we read of these promises in the Old Testament that were made to Israel, we must be careful not to appropriate them for ourselves, to say, well, God promises to do this as well for us. These were promises that were made specifically to the nation Israel, and they concerned national blessings, they concerned physical blessings, material blessings, and of course, under the new covenant, you and I, our blessings that are promised to us are not first and foremost material, but spiritual. God has blessed us, the word of God says, with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And thirdly, God promised Israel that if they would obey him, he would grant them military superiority. He says there, verses 7 and 8, You shall chase your enemies, they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. A case can be made that a nation, if a nation is not honoring God, if a nation is turning its back on God, then that nation can expect to suffer in these areas. God makes it abundantly clear that Israel's victory in battle was not dependent on its size, the size of its army, nor the, in, the impressiveness of its weaponry. That's the, the nation's security, the nation's prosperity, lay largely in their relationship to God. Now we come this afternoon to the fourth blessing. God promised Israel... That if they would obey him, he would make his dwelling with them. He would make his dwelling with them. Verses 11 and 12. Here's what God said. He says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. In the language of 1 John, we have here the promise of the promise of fellowship with God. The promised blessing of fellowship with God. The blessing of obedience to the word of God is that it affords one the privilege of fellowship with God. Fellowship with God in which one walks in the light as he is in the light. First John chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. And such fellowship with God in which he comes to us and makes his home with us as it were is what he's talking about. And here we recall the words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 21 and 23. Remember what our Lord Jesus promised his disciples, and by extension, he promises you and me, says there in John 14, 21 and 23, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Here's what he says in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the language of fellowship, and that's precisely what God was promising Israel. God was promising Israel that if they remained faithful to him, if they were faithful to the covenant, he would be special to them. He would come alongside them, as it were, he would make his home 
with them. We use the language today, you hear it said, let me come and hang out with you. That's essentially what God is saying here. God effectively was saying to Israel, if you remain faithful to my word, I'll come and we'll hang out together. As God suggested to Israel in verse 13, in addition to the blessing of his drawing close to them, theirs would be the blessing of freedom. That freedom from which they were, for which they were delivered from bondage in the land of Egypt. Notice what he says there in verse 13. Right after he gives that promise of fellowship with himself, of his coming to make his home with them, he says there in verse 13, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and have broken the bars of your yoke and make you perfect. And certainly what we could say here, beloved, is this, that never are you and I more free, never are you and I truly free as believers, as when we are walking with the Lord, as when we are in fellowship with the living God. In fact, the songwriter puts it so well when he wrote, he says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way while we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. So that takes care of the blessings, many blessings that God promised Israel, having dwelt at length then on the path of obedience, the path of blessing, the Lord now directs your attention to the path of disobedience and judgment. We see that in verses 14 through 39. And knowing full well the sinful proclivities of the nation, notice what God does in verses 14 and 15. He cites the possibility of their not heeding the word of God. God knows the human heart. God promises all of these blessings to Israel, just as he promises you and me, blessings of, his, 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 of fellowship with him. But here's the point. God knows the hearts of men. He knows the human heart. And so God makes provision here uh, for judgment in the case of disobedience. Notice what he says, verses 14 and 15. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this, that, and the other. And in these verses, we see the Lord presenting five vivid pictures of what it means to dishonor him, of what it means to be disobedient to his word. And in these word pictures, we see something of what I would call the incremental, regressive nature of spiritual declension. The fact that spiritual decline, spiritual declension, oftentimes never occurs in an instant, never occurs spontaneously, but over time, by degrees, we enter spiritual declension. Notice, first of all, disobedience to the Lord, according to the word of God here, begins with not listening to what God says. Disobedience to the word of God begins with not listening to what God says. It begins by not opening one's ears and hearts to his directives. We see that in verse 14a, but if you will not listen, God says, in effect, it, to be disobedient to God is to shut out the word of God from one's life. 
We know we are disobeying the word of God whenever we are not paying attention to his word to begin with, whenever we are not reading the word of God, whenever the word of God does not have a place in our thoughts, we are on the path of disobedience. And this language he uses in verse 14a smacks, it speaks of indifference toward the Lord and his will. Not hearing the Lord is to be indifferent toward him. Secondly, disobedience to the Lord, to be disobedient, is to not do his commandment. It is to fail to put them into effect. We see that in the B part of verse 4. He says there, and will not do all these commandments. This is what is termed the sin of omission. We have the sin of commission in which we do the things we should not do. We have the sin of omission in which we do fail or omit to do the things God says we should do. And notice thirdly, to be disobedient to the Lord is to spurn his status, is to spurn his word, is to despise or show scant regard for his word. Verse 15. And what we have here is a spirit of contempt and rebellion against God. Spurning the word of God, not hearing the word of God, not doing the word of God, smacks of contempt for God, it smacks of rebellion against God. Fourthly, we see in the B part of verse 15 that to be disobedient to the Lord is to abhor his rules, is to abhor his rules. That word speaks of scorn. And here we have an attitude of hatred for God. We have an attitude of hatred for God and his word. Somebody says, well, you can't say I don't hate God. I I hate God. Why? Because there's no feeling of antipathy in my heart toward him. I don't have a feeling of ill will toward God. But here's the point. God says that whenever we are not for him, we are against him. Not to be serving him, not to be obeying him is in fact to what? Hate him. It's as plain as that. And then fifthly, to be disobedient to the Lord, notice the C part of verse 15, to be disobedient to the Lord is to break covenant with him. It's to break covenant with him. God speaks here of Israel not hearing, not doing, spurning his word and breaking his covenant. According to one lexicon, the Hebrew word that's translated break carries the idea, one writer puts it, of quote, nullifying or violating a treaty, covenant or agreement, and so be in a state of disassociation, end quote. This is what we call disloyalty. This is a negation of his claim on one's life. This is a declaration of autonomy and independence of God. Whenever we are not obeying God, whenever we forget God's word, we shun God's word, we spurn God's word, we are breaking covenant with him, we are declaring our dissociation from him. And such an act, we could say, smacks of treachery. It smacks of unfaithfulness. And the point is this, that such is the way of disobedience. To God and his word. 
My friends, we have to consider then how serious, how serious it is when we fail to obey the word of God. Because when you and I fail to obey the word of God, what we are doing, number one, is this. We are closing our ears, we are closing our hearts from listening and hearing what God has to say to us. We're refusing to do it. We are refusing to put it into effect. We are showing scant contemptuous regard for it. We are abhorring it. That's the language of Scripture. We are breaching covenant with God. Well, having cited the possibility of Israel's disobedience to his word, notice the Lord calls attention to the penalties for such disobedience. The penalties for disobeying his word. Verses 16 through 39. And the punishments, the penalties that God sets forth in verses 16 through 39, we could say are most horrifying, suggesting the utter folly and ensuing misery of despising the word of God. Let's look at some of the penalties, the perils with which God mercifully, when we have to say here what God is doing, God is mercifully warning his people so as to steer them from the path of disobedience and judgment. Notice first of all verse 16, this A part of verse 16. In terms of the penalty for disobedience, God tells his people he will cause them to go frantic, he will cause them to panic, to be in a state of unrest and turbulence of heart. Here's what he says, Then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic. I will visit you with panic. The Hebrew word that's used there for panic connotes horror. It connotes that which generates intense fright. God is saying to his people, if you are out of line with me, then you are going to be ill at ease, your heart and mind and soul. You're going to go frantic. You're going to go crazy. You are going to be horrified. And isn't this what our Lord Jesus said concerning the end times? He spoke of how men's hearts would be what? Failing them for fear of those things that are coming upon the earth. Why are men's hearts failing them for fear? Because they have rejected God, they have forgotten God, and when the heart is out of sync with God, then we can expect nothing but panic and terror and dread. That was why Augustine said this, O God, our hearts are restless. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So God is threatening here that if his people prove unfaithful, if they prove rebellious toward him, they'll come to know such disturbing horror as panic attacks. They'll know the pain of faint-heartedness, of being weak-hearted. Notice also verse 36, and as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts, into the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They are not at peace, you see. Why? Because they are out of sync with God, and hence they are easily ruffled, easily Troubled in heart and mind. Notice, secondly, God threatens them with freak illnesses. 
He threatens them with freak illnesses, that is, unusual kinds of illnesses. Verse 16, B, he speaks of inflicting them with, quote, wasting diseases and fever that consume the eye and make the heart ache. God is saying here, look, you will come to know and experience all kinds of dreadful, debilitating maladies if you fail to honor me, to honor my word, to serve me. In disobeying him, they'll experience not only freak illnesses, but they'll experience frustration. And here we're talking about frustration where they'll not be able to see or reap the benefits of their labor. They'll be working, 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 and they can't see what they're working for. Haggai speaks of it like this. He says, your earnings, your wages... It's like you're getting your wages, but you're putting it in a bag of holes. Here's what God said to Israel in the sea part of verse 16. He says, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. They'll toil for years, labor for years, only to have at the end of the day their social security monies redistributed as freebies. Invaders. I think what the Lord is using here in our modern parlance, He would speak of you know the the, the, the pains of redistribution. You sow, you work hard, you put toward your social security, you work hard, and in the end, strangers consume it. That's what God is saying here. That's a mark of divine judgment. Notice for their disobedience, verse 17, the Lord threatened Israel that he would what? Set his face against them. Look at verse 17. He says there, verse 17, I'll set my face against you. What is God saying here? I won't even look at you. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. You notice all the time he's talking about your enemies, your enemies. One of the ways God typically judges people back then he would use their enemies to come against them, to inflict them. For example, he used Assyria, and he, he refers to Assyria as the rod of his anger. The face of God speaks, beloved, of his grace. It speaks of his favor. It speaks of his disposition to bless and do his people good. God, in effect, is saying that he would not show his kindness, he would not show his favor toward his rebellious people, he would turn his face from them. And notice verse 17, also, they would go to war but end up fighting, losing battles. Verse 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies, those who hate you, Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Let me say this, my friends. You know this very well, that ungodliness in the life of a nation... When a nation decides to turn its back on God, when a nation says to God, God, we don't want you, we don't need you, we don't need you in our schools, we don't need you in our government, we don't need you in our institutions. Read the text. What does God promise will occur? Listen. 
ungodliness in the life of a nation lends itself to one's coming, that nation coming under the tyranny and oppression of one's enemies. And the enemies need not be outside. The enemies can be within. We see in verses 18 to 28, God telling how relentless he will be he will be in punishing them. If, if you don't repent, he's saying, God is saying here, he's threatening them, he's telling them how he will relentlessly persist in pursuing them, in judging them until they desist from their waywardness. Look at what he says, verses 18 through 20. He says, and if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. What God is saying here, it will only get tougher and tougher and tougher. The more you go into sin, the more you harden your heart against me, your life will become more miserable and more miserable and more miserable and no more miserable. What is the promise of uh, God to the wicked through the prophet Isaiah? He says, there is no peace to the wicked, says my God. Verses 18 through 20. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I'll break the pride of your power, and I will make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. What is God doing there? God is touching the ecology, the environment. Today we make a big deal about the environment and we are talking about this and talking about that about the environment. But here's the point. God touches the environment because of man's sins. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 107, he dries up springs of water. God can reverse the, 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 the course of nature in terms of its helpfulness to man. It's helpfulness and it's helpfulness. And God can use creation. He can use nature. He can use the ecology against man in his rebellion against God. On account of their disobedience, they would know the frustration of failing agricultural yield. Hence, food shortages is what God is threatening here. Verses 21, 22. Here's what he says. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking. God says, I'm not going to give up. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep hammering at you. I'll keep, I'll continue striking you, and it will get worse. He says, I'll do it sevenfold. Verse 22, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. God is the God of creation. And God uses the forces of nature. God uses his creation in order to judge his people. I will let loose the wild beasts against you which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Somebody says, well, we don't have much wild beasts to do that. But here's the point. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that God uses the forces of nature to bring about his judgment against rebellious man. Verses 23, 24. And if by this 
If by this discipline, notice how God is persistent. He's recurrently telling them. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Again, verses 27, 28. But if in spite of this, here it comes again, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Such discipline, he warns, would entail, notice, verses 30 to 32, the utter destruction of their idolatrous centers, as well as their cities, there will be mass carnage because he talks about their bodies falling upon their idols. All of these are tokens of his displeasure. On top of that, verses 33 to 39, they would be driven into exile from the promised land. Now, as we have gone through that lengthy portion, let's wrap up with some valuable lessons. What can we take away from this passage I think it's very clear to begin with number one. We learn from this passage that we never fight against, we never rebel against God and win. It's clear in the passage. We never fight against God and prosper. God will see to it that in the end he gets his way. God will see to it that in the end that we pay for our sins or rebellion against him. Secondly, we learn from this passage that persistent disobedience invites sure judgment. Persistent disobedience invites sure judgment. What? In other words, we reap precisely what we sow. We call it the law of the harvest. The law of the harvest is not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. For example, Galatians 6. Verses 7 and 8 teaches this. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit shall reap life everlasting. We sow to the wind. We reap the whirlwind, the prophet Hosea says in Hosea 8 and verse 7. And then thirdly, we learn from this passage that confession of sin and humility before God are necessary conditions for restoration to fellowship and favor with God. Look at verses 40 and 40, 40 to 42. Here's God. God made provision for their obedience. Should they be obedient to him, he would bless them. God made provision for their disobedience. If they disobey, he would judge them. But notice, God also makes provision for the possibility of their restoration. Here's what he says, verses 40 to 42. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then... Their uncircumcised heart is humbled. So notice there's confession, humility, and they make amends, that's change for their iniquity. Look at verse 42. Then 
I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abram, and I will remember the land. Very important principle. Yes, we fight against God. We never win. We cannot prosper. Persistent disobedience invites its sure wrath. But praise God, confession of sin, humility before God, and amendment of our ways, turning from our sins, restores us to favor and fellowship with God. And then finally, the final lesson we can take away from this passage is this. Beautiful. Here it comes. Whereas God may have to judge his people severely for their sins, he'll never fail to be gracious. Yes, he may have to whip us, chastise us severely, but the wonderful truth is this, that if we are his children, if we are truly saved, he'll never fail to be gracious. Look at verses 43 to 45. We learn there that even in chastising his people, God is most gracious and merciful. Hear what these verses say, say to us. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoyed Sabbath while it lies desolate without them, and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul aboard my statutes. Verse 44, yet for all that. When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I, here it comes, I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. What is that? That is the almighty grace of God. The God who forgives the God who never abandons his children in judgment, but the God who reclaims and redeems those who are his. What valuable lessons we learn in this passage. The path of blessing and curses, judgment. The path of disobedience and divine judgment. May God bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake.